Daddy, you're gonna see the doctor, and then the clock starts. The clock starts. Daddy was so full of life. His legacy is massive. Why not just try? Elon started an airline. He believed everyone should be able to afford to fly. Are you concerned that the big boys are gonna drive you out of business? No. Eli was a philanthropist. He would raise millions. He was pillar of society. Meeting with prime ministers, princes, presidents. He knows Joe Biden from the 70s. And even though he ran an airline, he would get the kids to school. We were a happy five-some. Those were idyllic years. And then one day, he had a massive stroke from an accident and life changed forever. Well, I'm gonna take my life on the 3rd of March. I don't wanna fight anymore. I just want peace. We don't call it assisted suicide. We call it supporting the right to terminate your life. We don't get a choice on how we come into this world, but we should have a choice on how we go out. Are you definitely, definitely sure you're ready to go? I'm ready to go. The next adventure. I'm so grateful that my wife is stuck with me. I'm an old shoe, don't you understand? You're my slipper. You never helped me like that. <laughs> Are you scared? No. What's made the difference now? Confidence. There's a story in the Talmud. May your saplings be just like you. You did pretty well with the saplings, don't you think? Bunch of saps. <laughs> I'm scared of what it's going to be like to not have a father. I've always had him there. I'm his daughter. When he needs me to be his rabbi, I'll be his rabbi. My whole path has been because of him. What you've provided for us our whole lives is love and care. The world looks so peaceful from above. You've been grounded for so long. I'll always watch you. That was the trailer for the featured documentary, Last Flight Home. And this is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. Behind a white picket fence on an unremarkable suburban street, Eli Timoner is about to die. Just as he lived, he will do so surrounded by his loved ones on his own terms. As filmed by Eli's middle child, award-winning filmmaker Ondi Timoner, Last Flight Home is an incredibly intimate and poignant film about what it means to live and to die. Join us as we talk with Ondi about the incredible journey she and her family have taken with this film, the impact it's having on so many people's lives, and how she knows Eli is still watching over them. Stay tuned. Ondi Timoner, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm uh, just back from New York where we did a series of impact appearances with the film, uh, screening at Noy House as well as a appearance on CNN on Alan Poor and company. Oh, wow. uh, it was wonderful, actually. They, they were so passionate about the film, so that was beautiful. Well, to remind our listeners and, and viewers, we're talking about Last Flight Home. It was shortlisted for an Academy Award. It's currently still streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And yes, I just want to welcome you again, and it's an honor to, to have you on. Um, Andy, what how we usually start is we ask our filmmakers, guests, uh, what is Last Flight Home all about? But I know this is uh, a, something that's very personal to you uh, for those who haven't had a chance to see it. But maybe you can get us started, give us just sort of a, a synopsis of what, what this film is. Sure. Uh, Last Flight Home is a sort of an unexpected documentary, even to me. Um, I sort of panicked when my father, uh, who I loved very much and who was really an extraordinary man in many ways, uh, suddenly decided it was time to go. He was so tenacious all his life and so positive, despite having been paralyzed from an accidental stroke for 40 years, um, that he was never going to say that, but he did. And so when he did, it was January, late January, 2021. And um, we we all had to figure out how to support him in that. Um, legally, we got really lucky that we live in California and that there's an end of life option act here that allowed him to go through a 15-day waiting period of hospice at home before he would end his own life with medical aid and dying. And my family and I, you know, struggled with this choice and were terrified 
the whole way through. But he said to mm. me, you know, Andy, would you rather know the day I'm going to die or would you rather get a call in the middle of the night? Um, and it's true. It really allowed us all to prepare and to plan and to have closure and to be able to celebrate even his life. Um, and for him, it was like wind in a sails. So uh, the movie really starts with him telling me that. Mm. And I started recording right away just because I was wanted to not forget another word he said till he was gone. And uh, at what, you know, what began as private, private documentation, uh, you know, I've been making films for 30 years. So I had mm. multi cameras and I had his blessing. He said, I know you're on the right track. And I didn't know what track I was on, but it started as a personal uh, documentation and it it's turned into a, you know, public facing film that has helped a lot of people. And it, it sort of takes you through the end of his life, but also goes back into his life a little bit as well. And our family's mm -hmm. journey. On that. Okay. Now, uh, as you're saying, he's, you know, he, um, he, he suffered from the effects of a severe stroke for 40 years and, uh, and, and gamely went through life. Uh, but what, what do you think? I mean, you've already mentioned that he made the decision, but what, what do you think changed in January 2021 for him in terms of making that decision not to, to want to live anymore? Uh, well, he was in the hospital for breathing complications to do with COPD. Um, and uh, he, you know, he, he was in bed, I think, for five days. And because he'd been a hemiplegic, for 40 years since he was 53 um, mm -hmm. where back, you know, let's go back to that 1982. Yeah. He was running. He ran six miles that morning. He was in tip top shape, but he went in for a massage and the masseur cracked his neck, um, which can result in a stroke. And uh, I actually saw a neurologist recently who said she had three patients that had that happen to them. So uh, that happened to him. And, um, and so he's in bed for five days and he's 92 now he just turned 92 sharp as attack right most yeah witty funny sharp 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 man yeah. but was told he wasn't going to walk again and he needed to go to a facility um he just his body would not have been able to recover the ability to walk as it was he had fallen many times during covid trying to walk but he was such an independent entrepreneur you know right. he was someone who just couldn't bear with the idea of being shelved away in a bed in a facility. And also for him, his only joy really was being around my, my mother, his beloved wife and, and the family. Mm. And that's all he lived for. So he didn't want to go lie somewhere and wait for a, a weekly visit. Um, right, right. He just, he said, I served my sentence. I've done my time mm. of sentence. And um, he was so despondent, you know, but as soon as my brother found that there was a law, which we didn't even know about. And the reason we didn't know about it is because no one talks about death and dying. And, right, uh, true. you know, we just had yeah. no idea. Like we don't think about it. We don't talk about it. So we're facing this as a, suddenly, you know, and he's basically saying, come and put a pillow over my face, you know, and pleading mm. with each one of us, if we love him, we'll help him die. Um, and David found this law and, I tell you, he was, it, it brought him such hope, peace, joy. The idea that he could have agency over his own body after 40 years of really being, you know, he was ousted from the airline he had founded because right. of, of stigma to do with disability, even though he was totally able to run it and it ran into the ground. He was, you know, after that, they, the man who ousted him like ran it into the ground. Um, he lost his fortune. You know, he he was sidelined in every way, uh, but he remained positive, never complained, you know, and it was just really here at this moment where he just couldn't bear it anymore. He couldn't just smile and bear it. And we needed to get behind him. Even my sister is a rabbi. Uh, and, you know, at that point, Reform Judaism, along with every other religion in the world, was like, you know, life is a blessing and it's wrong to take life and not not really distinguishing terminally ill people who are going to die anyway um which is what you know i hope that this film helps to do now politically as well okay uh, has helped us understand that distinction and, and give people their basic human right of bodily autonomy mm. now you as you, you've already said you get the call and you already you immediately start recording because you you want to remember get all those last conversations and with him on you know on tape uh and and you've decided, it, you, so you're a filmmaker. What you do is you film, 
Um, but what was every, you know, you already said what your dad's reaction was, but what was everyone else's reaction? I mean, did they think you were crazy for doing this? And you're all living, you're all going through this at the same time, you know? So, so my, my, my own reaction, like when yeah. I thought of it was, this is extremely inappropriate. Right. Like I went to a therapist. <laughs> I actually went to a therapist and I fully expected her to agree with me. And she said, if you feel you need to film, you should film. I couldn't believe that. So I called my dad in the hospital and he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. Right. I called right. my mom and she said, I would never buck you in anything you feel you should do. Right. Right. just supports me you know i thought maybe dad was just supporting me too but i actually think now he knew he knew i was making a film and he wanted to contribute in this way um mm. and no one else knew that <laughs> my brother and i founded interloper films together so he was and he's a pretty laissez-faire guy so he was just kind of like okay andy you do you you know and 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 my whole family will tell you that I film everything all the time anyway. So they were just kind of like, okay, this is how Andy's processing this, you know? And to be honest, I felt like it was a way that I could contribute to the family because, you know, my brother would interview my dad at night, as you saw a brief segment of, um, you know, about family history and, and things like that, mm. that were really gone as soon as he was gone. So it felt very much like I was contributing. Also one of the cameras was in another room, the one that had like, it had a long lens and it was always on dad and whoever was visiting and mm. it had, it had the lav mics in it. So, so I find like my brother listening to his kids talking to dad uh, and I'd find him behind the camera, you know, um, right. it was a way that you couldn't see the camera from the bed. Um, mm. And so it was a way that you kind of could, could, could give privacy and give, you know, give right. that space to whoever was at the bedside, but also, hear what's going on. I found my own son behind the camera, listening to his grandparents having this wow. beautiful moment that you see in the film. I found him. I said, what's going on like that? And he was, he turned to me and just tears coming down his oh. face. So, so that was a beautiful sort of side uh, benefit of, of documenting. But my sister was the real challenge in all this. She's, she's anti-camera in general. Um, <laughs> She doesn't like cameras, even though I've been making a film about her for like three years now, um, which is why you'd see that footage of her in New York. She's an extraordinary rabbi and social activist. And I, I think, as right. you can see in the film, she's, I mean, part of the reason I had to share this film is because some of the rituals that she brought, uh, like mm. the dad confessional and like the singing and like the bathing of dad's body, the openness and tucking him in with the dirt, you know, so many of the mm. things she brought from Judaism and, uh, you know, in general, I thought were so important that it felt wrong not to share it. But mm. back to asking her permission, um, she said it wouldn't be what I, it wouldn't be what I would choose, but mom and dad, you know, if this is important to you, that's mm. what's most important. And my father said, it's important to me. Um, and my mother said at that point, now it's like a week into it or two weeks, yeah. you know, it's five days. Be Rachel came five days before dad died. By then they were committed to filming. They loved the idea that there would be something of dad left after he was gone. I think everybody in the family loved that idea, but Rachel, she says that she made a decision that the cameras weren't there. And as soon as she walked into the room, she just forgot about the cameras because what was happening was so much more important, obviously. Mm. And so, so sort of earth shattering for lack of a better word, like it really felt like we were walking on the moon in our parents' living room. Like it was so mm. fine to walk this plank towards a specific day that dad had chosen to die. You know, the idea of the cameras like just disappeared, but I also made my best efforts to make it, to use everything I'd ever done in making Verite films in thir for right. 30 years to make those cameras disappear. I mean, one was right. behind the TV, one was like part of the furniture. As right. you saw, I had a Nest camera. The yeah. reason I had surveillance cameras because I didn't want the process of filmmaking to ever uh, become a thing. So like I didn't yeah. have a VP and a crew, for example. I just, I just kept the Nest so I had no time of day and um, and I would know like, you know, the order of things that so I didn't have to label cards or do right. anything, worry too much about the process. And I just kind of, that house is a house that I own that I gave to my parents that I, I originally bought when I was um, just finishing my movie Dig. 
Right. And I built offices behind it. I built edit suites behind it. So mm. I actually could make the entire thing disappear into those offices, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, um, so no. the family just had a sacred space. And it worked out. I mean, it was meant to be, obviously. The whole thing's meant to be. People say, like, what are the chances that a man has a, a Rebberite filmmaker and a rabbi as, as two, da <laughs> two daughters? <laughs> um, so I feel like maybe all my work all my work over the last 30 years has led me to this moment, you know, prepared me for this moment. Well, indeed. And then for you personally, because you've already said how you've, you know, for you and your family, how you film this and make it as least intrusive as possible. But, how, but, but you're actually going through a grieving or, or celebration process, however you describe it. Uh, how did, how was that for you personally? Cause you're having to, you're filming and, you know, going through this just like your sister and, and brother and mother are going through this. Well, so when I went to the therapist, I said to her, you know, before I even did this, I said, I'm worried about, I'm worried I'm trying to hide from this or like hmm. I'm trying to mediate the experience and place this lens as like a, you know, a separation from this inevitable loss right. that I'm about to experience. And right. uh, it, it was exactly the opposite. It was literally the first time in my entire career that filmmaking was there for me on an emotional level. As soon mm -hmm. as I set up those cameras, it was like a safety blanket. I was able to be fully present with my dad because I was nine when my father had that stroke. And um, I cannot remember him able-bodied before that. So I was just terrified to forget him. That was really the biggest fear I had. And having the cameras there, I knew I would have something to remember him by and and that I would remember everything. And she also said, the therapist said to me, you keep this in mind, you're gonna be in shock the whole mm. time, all of you, which I have since talked to obviously as the film has toured around so many people who thought they would remember what their parents said or what their loved ones said on the deathbed mm. or what happened. And you, when you are in there, it is the most sacred, I don't know if you've been through a great loss, but there is something, and I've everybody I, I hear this from is like there is such a it's such a sacred and beautiful space. Mm. Um, made even more so, I think in in my case, my dad was just so calm, courageous, tender, mm. and funny. You know that he was like the captain of that room, and it was the it was the, these were like some of the best weeks of my life. Even though I was obviously wow. struggling with a lot of grief, it was pure presence. You are purely present. Nothing outside matters. And what's most important in life, which is love, is all that matters. And it's all that you're surrounded by in that room, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Yet, I didn't remember a ton of what happened. She was absolutely right. We were all in shock and talking to people, you know, since uh, all kinds of people, they say, like, I can't remember, I can't remember anything from then, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, that's another thing is that I, you know, my mother always says in Q and A's film your loved ones. Like mm. that's the biggest takeaway she has from this because she's watched the film like 550 times to spend time with dad, you know, from the first, you know, it, was, it all started as a memorial video. It was supposed to be a five minute memorial video that my sister asked me to make. And it turned into a 32 minute memorial video because dad was alive inside the Abbott two weeks after he died. I, I don't think I would have turned on the editing system and looked at the footage quite that early but Rachel said well there's a zoom memorial you've got footage can you just put something together and as yeah. you saw in the film he he does so many beautiful visits with his first flight mm. attendant and you know different people I thought oh I'll just cut some it'll be easy you know right and then right. I just didn't even stand up for a week and like I stood up with a 32 minute <laughs> video which yeah obviously Rachel wasn't happy about that but um <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna but, say you, you told five minutes and you deliver thirty-two. <laughs> so. Yeah, she's like, I had a memorial planned, um, <laughs> and now it's a film screening. <laughs> but it was really like off that yeah. off that first initial. I couldn't believe I couldn't believe the things that were that I was seeing, and now sort of, you know, Dad was where he needed to be, mm. and I and wanted to be, and I didn't have to worry about his comfort and care anymore. I could just be with him and it was an extraordinary gift. I can't even begin to describe what it was like to grieve while editing this film. Um, people say, oh, it must've been so hard to edit this film. And it's like, 
actually it was the most, you know, the most symbiotic and beautiful experience as an editor I've ever had. Um, except obviously the death of my father, which was the only part I couldn't mm. base off the raw footage. I had to get, uh, you know, assistance to cut something together. And then once I saw it, I was like, oh no, we have to have this and this and this. And I ended mm. up editing like 50 times, but even that was very painful um, because to, to handle something that surgically, you know, and go from like grieving daughter, right. to daughter um, that felt weird. And now of course, every time I do a Q and a, I walk in and watch my father die um, again and again and again. So that's intense. I, I, cry, I, I cry still. Yeah. I, I, I can only imagine. Um, why don't we, I, I do want to talk more about this and uh, not trying to make you relive your dad's death yet again, but, uh, uh, why don't we go uh, give our listeners and viewers a, a quick early break here. We'll be right back with award-winning filmmaker Andy Timoner, director of Last Flight Home. Uh, do check it out on Paramount+. Plus. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with award-winning filmmaker Andy Timoner, director of Last Flight Home. It is streaming on Paramount Plus for those of you who have access to that. Uh, you were just talking about what it's like to, well, you've had to relive or have relived your father's death many times, both in the uh, the very screenings you've done and in edit. Um, yet. Um, I mean, what was more on that? I'm not trying to get too bogged down on the sort of the edit side of things, but as, as you said, it was a very difficult thing to do. But did you learn? Did you learn anything new about your mom and dad in this process? You know, did you when you when you start? Well, I maybe step back. It was intended to be a memorial film, became like a 32, and then when did you, it never was intended to be a feature? When did you know what happened there? You just knew you had something that was. Uh, a f feature worthy or that you needed to get this out there. Yeah. I, I learned so much. I'll combine your, your two questions with one answer. Um, yeah. I learned so much about my mother and father and our family and life and death and exactly. how to live and how to die. Right. Uh, even in that 32 minute memorial video, which was like a memorial video, but it also the effect and impact it had on all of the people in that zoom memorial, it made them less scared of dying. It made them mm -hmm. want to talk about it. It made them want to understand medical aid and dying. It made them want to have that right themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it was very clear to me that what I was handling was extremely unique footage uh, that, 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 documents something no one has ever seen. It was a scene, it was, it's so, you know, as mm. Werner Herzog put it, he, he did some, an interview with me very graciously. And he said, you wow. film the unfilmable, you know, it was, it was something that just no one ever has access to that. Right. And right. Um, it's a really scary thing to think about sharing something that intimate and private. And, and that was a whole other phase was convincing Rachel to allow this to be shared. That's another conversation we can have. <laughs> right. right. Um, but but I it was clear to me right off March 21st, 2021, three weeks after dad died, the memorial happens. And it was clear to all of us that the footage was extremely powerful. Also, I'm still, I'm having a, an absolutely wonderful time spending time with dad. I can't, right. you know, I come out of my, I have an edit bay at home and I come out of my bedroom. I can go left to the rest of the house or I can go right to the edit bay. Yeah. And I just kept turning right. You know, I just kept yeah. wanting to be with dad and be with and, and explore this and process my grief in this way. So that's how it started. And then my, I went from like grieving daughter to filmmaker. And I started to notice that everyone who walked in that room left it changed. And that's right. what you look for as a filmmaker, right? You look right. for dramatic right. parts. Right. The biggest changes were with mom and dad, you know, but mm. everyone, any, anybody who visited and, you know, everybody was, 
had their perspective on death changed. Um, all the Zoom calls, people, you know, came in there really scared and left there, mm. uh, you know, feeling somewhat comforted. And um, and then, of course, mom went from total denial. Mm. process that she was going to lose her partner 54 years. She's begging him the night before to go to a facility so that she can, like, be with him and stay with him and he can stay there, you know, and he has to let her down that he's made his decision. But he was also, I think, you know, feeling like he could help us more being outside his body. I feel like all he cares about, and I say that in the present, because I do actually have pretty close to empirical evidence that he's watching, <laughs> um, is to be outside. As I wouldn't have believed that before that story right. I can tell you. But, um, um, you know, he, he believed solidly that, you know, you see in the film, we flash back to October uh, 2020, and he has... He thinks there's nothing after death. It's pure black, pure nothing. Right, and right. And he died, he was absolutely sure he'd be watching us and that he could put a protective shield around us or he wanted to put a protective yeah. shield around yeah. us. Um, and I think that's partially because the veil was lifting and he could see his family. Mm. Um, and I've talked to a lot of people now in, in end-of-life work and who have had end-of-life experiences where loved ones have seen their family um, mm -hmm. or you know, seen to the other side. So I think the veil is actually right there, but we just can't see it till we get close to it, close to crossing ourselves. Um, but anyway, so dad, dad's are, you know, mom goes towards from denial to facing it right. and to really being able to be present with dad. Like she's kind of dodging around the bed for weeks. And my sister and I like had two missions. One, get mom to face this before it's too late and spend time with dad. Right. Two, get dad to realize that he's given us everything when he thought he had given us nothing and that mm. he had failed us because he lost his money and wasn't able to provide for us financially. And to realize that he taught us how to be good people, that he was the greatest example of humanity any of us had ever known. Um, we managed to accomplish both goals. He, mm. you know, he unburdens himself in that vidui, the right. Jewish death confessional but that's after 15 days of hearing and having reflected back on him all of the love and support and guidance and wisdom that he had provided for us not just his family but our housekeeper when we were kids the au pair yeah, crying yeah. saying he was the dad that sh that she never had you know the, the the first flight attendant who says that you know she he's been her hero all her life and taught her how to be a leader you know, it was just on and on and on. He realized, oh, my God, in the ways that really matter, I guess I really did do, I did some good things. You know, as Rachel says mm -hmm. in the film, we're not perfect in this life, but you were good. And um, and he's able to actually admit and voice the shame he's carried for borrowing money from friends and being in a desperate position in life. And I think that's the biggest, that was the biggest impetus for me to share the film was like, mm -hmm. you know, this idea that we walk around with all of this unnecessary shame and guilt and feelings of failure, all of us in this mm -hmm. life, holding on to relatively inconsequential things. Um, and to see dad actually go through that and a man that great, hold on to it till the last day and then be able to let go of it by voicing it, I thought was a lesson we all mm -hmm. needed to to have on how to live really, you know, yeah. and what's most important in life. So, well, so that I mean, was, that, was it. that was like, that was the journey. And within two months, two and a half months, there was like a feature film. Yeah. It was like, it's... Oh my God. And then I was like, what have I done? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> so I went to a film festival in Birmingham, Alabama called sidewalk film festival right. where my is the director. And she said, do you have anything for me this year? I said, I think I might have a short about my dad. And then I called her back like, you know, two weeks later, I'm like, actually, it's a feature and I'm not done with it, but I'd love to test it in a secret screening with no mm. title. Could I do that and just sit in the back? And she said, anything you want. And so she put it on a Saturday afternoon for 100 people. And the reaction there is what convinced me, okay, I'm on the right track, as dad said, and I, I need to put this film out. So then wow. we went to Rachel. <laughs> that's, that's all amazing. I mean, just as a side note, have you ever done something like that before with a, a secret screening and just to test, no. you know? I've done test screenings, but never like 
foisted something this insane on people on a Saturday afternoon, you know? Right. Um, and what we saw, like Morgan and I were sitting in the back, my partner and I, and yeah. who scored the film and, uh, people like a few people stood up and left like 10 minutes in and she right. leaned over to me and she said, I think this was a terrible idea. And I leaned over back to her and I said, well, at least it's in Birmingham and we can leave it here. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> but it turned out those people were getting popcorn and, <laughs> back, and there was a standing ovation people were like the thing that really turned me on that was these 20 year old boys like these like ki kids yeah. stood up back and they said we now have a role model like we had never had a man we could emulate well, till now and well, i thought I mean, well, nothing else that's a good reason to put this film out so i raced back to la and yeah. finished it for sundance um yeah yeah. yeah, and I'm sure, and I'm sure you've had plenty of people, and I'm not, you know, have said, you know, have kind of focused. It's about, you know, a film about this, this, this man who's who's dying. But what's kept strike, what struck me throughout the whole thing was, as you've just said, it was all about how to live and what what is important about life and how we should and how we live that life. And uh, I mean, did you? Um, did you know, I mean, you, you obviously he's your dad and he had this powerful impact on you, but did, did you have any inkling that he had had such an impact on all these people through the I years? I did. There were testimonial dinners every year. Uh, really? The Air Florida, which is this, this my mother just gave me, which she used to wear all the time. It's the logo of the company. Right. Um, um, and... Uh, um, I've written a script about this. I, that's that, that's the other crazy thing, Matthew, is that I the pages you see on the bed are yeah. scripted version of this story yeah. Uh, yeah. because the airline was so extraordinary. It had such a meteoric rise. And, and you see in the film, there's the route to London that they win. And right. they win that over a million petitions. Dad democratized the skies or did, you know, did a lot towards that. Um, he put deregulation through Congress so he could charge like $41 to fly from New York to Miami. And, right. um, and then like London was like a hundred and something, you know, $118 or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and he did it with such flair. Like the yeah. reason he was able to get all this petition signed or get bills passed was because he, he made the company like a family, you know, mm -hmm. he led it lovingly. And with grace, he did everything with grace, you know, and uh, I mean, he didn't try to be good. He just was good. And I don't know. I've never met anybody since like that. You know, to me, he was up there with like Buddha, Gandhi, you know, the greats. Right. My whole life, I've been making films about visionaries, you right. know, and in a way, I think I've just been chasing my dad. But they're always <laughs> flawed. I made Brand a second coming about Russell Brand, who I right. do think is a visionary, but he's very flawed, you know, and and so the movie is yeah. really facing drug, sex, and fame, and ultimately coming to find that one must go within to find true meaning in life, or like right, Anthony right. Newcomb from Dig, or Josh Harris yes. from Open Public. It goes on and on the list. I mean, Maplethorpe, right? Robert Maplethorpe, my scripted film starring your countryman Matt Smith. Um, yeah, you know, they're all like these visionaries that I call impossible visionaries. They're they're like they're mm. they're trying. You know, they see something we can't see at the time. And then they act impossibly trying to get to that goal, you know, and irrationally. Mm. And um, I just feel like uh, dad is, is that, but many people have said to me, like I was watching the film and I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Cause in your films, there's always a dark side. Right. And it's, there's no dark side with dad. How did you make a film about a person who's just good? And it's, it's rare to see a film about a person who's just great, you know, but I think because the specter of death is there mm. that, it be, it's still an absolutely gripping film because there's this mm. count and we're all going through this together. And the idea is you are, mm. you know, we're, un, we're peeling back the onion on dad's life. He goes yeah. from being a disembodied voice to a man who's helpless in a wheelchair, you know, and you're like lowered into a bed in diapers. And you're just thinking like, this is going to be such a sad hour and a half, you know? And then mm. he says, what he wants to do to Donald Trump. And, you know, everything changes and like, you realize, Oh my God, this could be pretty entertaining. Uh, yeah. And he's just really funny, you know, through the whole thing. And I feel like, but because we're counting that, like, because you're falling in love with him and you are been invited into this sacred private space to be part of our family and be by the bedside, mm. you know, that it's, 
it's a, it's still, it's possible to make a feature film about someone who's just good <laughs> not, and not, and about death. That's good. Like not a, not well, like a joyful experience as opposed to horrible, violent, sudden death, which is all that we see in all our media all the time. So that's, I think what is really unique about the film um, and certainly unique in my over films, you know, films that I've made. Um, but dad, yeah, I, I've always known he was great. They've had testimonial dinners. The former employees have celebrated him even when he couldn't make it anymore. They would have reunions and pass him around on an iPad on oxygen. He was on oxygen in his, in his chair mm -hmm. and they were, you know, visiting with him and telling, you know, telling him that they had children because of him and they met and fell in love because of him and right. that they went on to Eastern and uh, to United and American and Delta and that it was never the same after Air Florida. That was the only place that felt like a, a real, like a, what a company is supposed to be, right? Like a corporation right. is supposed right. to actually be a group of people that go unite towards a common goal. Yeah. And the culture there was just so effortlessly incredible. Um, so that they all learned and, and and that many of them have gone on to be leaders and executives. So he knew that. And I knew that, but he somehow, you know, I think especially the last few years, Matthew were so tough mm. for them. You know, COVID was so isolating and ha and was for all the elderly. Right. And, um, you know, we couldn't as children go help them. You know, you see that footage of mom's birthday and I have like a scarf on and glasses, you know, right, right. for COVID. Like it was yeah. so hard for them yeah. he just kept falling he kept falling and falling on my mother and my mother yeah. would have to like position him next to the bed and push him into the bed you know and there was no way to really help them my my son my own son would go you know he was the only one who was strong enough when my brother wasn't available because he's an editor you know my son would run over there and pick his grandfather up off the floor and by the end right. he had to go get the neighbors because it was so heavy you know the yeah. dead weight and he was gripping as you saw in the end his body was that's right light as a feather um my son just said that my son was in the q a in new york and he just mentioned that the difference of the weight of dad was extraordinary mm. um so yeah so i think he just he didn't realize by the end of his life that he had made such an impact especially on us he felt like he'd left let us down mm. um yeah well i mean but at the same time and the other thing he's done for all of us is and it's something you've alluded to and also and i think maybe even mentioned even sort of reference to those 20 somethings in Birmingham is that uh, in terms of role model um, is that, I mean, what is it about a society? I and mean, it's certainly the case here in the UK. It's even worse, I think, but people just don't want to talk about death. It's, it's something that we're, I mean, I, look, we don't want to talk about it. That's understandable, but it's just like people are just such, it seems to me in such denial, you know, that, this is going to happen and it is a part of life. And so it's, it's so scary. I mean, it's yeah. still scary to me, you know, yeah. the other day I received an email, my brother and I received an email from a cousin, Barbara Timoner. I don't know if she's still alive, but she's in yeah. Oregon. She was going to die. She mm -hmm. wrote us to say that she, they found cancer through her abdomen and that she yeah. was terminal and that death with dignity was going to help her um, mm. with medical aid and dying. And that that was going to happen this week. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, she, we were both, we were all rocked to the core at the concept mm. of like, well, th she thanked us for being part of her life, you know, and goodbye. And right. it's just the final goodbye is just so finite, right? It just feels yeah. so, that, you know, someone asked me in the Q&A the other night, like, and how do we become less scared of this? And I think the the way is to is to really take in, you know, and I can tell you that story if you want about how I kind of know dad's watching, but to, to just know I would that, love to hear it, actually. Sure. You can't really, like, I can't talk to dad. I mean, I talk, I can talk out loud to dad yeah. sometimes. Um, he's not really going to talk back to me, but... Sometimes I feel him around a little bit, but then I, I question it because I'm an agnostic person by nature, you know, yeah. skeptical. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, basically, you know, my mom hasn't had any signs and it's really, she's grieved so hard. Like it's mm. been 
it's been really rough. And the film has helped her immeasurably. So thank God for the film, because I don't know if she'd be here, actually. Mm. And sharing with audiences has been so gratifying. She's coming with us to Washington on June 4th and 5th and 6th to go and meet with congressmen and senators about medical aid and dying and screen the film for people of, of, you know, who represent us and legislators to talk about repealing the federal ban that exists since 1997 on medical aid and dying. So even if you live in a state that Mm -hmm. had states in the U S that have the right to die with dignity, if you have that, even if you don't have enough money, like you saw us pay for the medication, you can't afford to die because Medicare and Medicaid are banned from covering it. So beginning the conversation on a federal level, uh, all of this like has helped keep my mom and, and, you know, and really sustain my mom, but she would love to just be with dad. Like that's ultimately what she's looking forward to. Like I even have took her down to the, his grave once and she like, you know, lay down next to it <laughs> in preparation. Right. She loves visiting the grave and she's very, very comforted knowing that she will be there with him. Right. Um, one day, like a few weeks ago, she was walking into her kitchen. She tripped over a, like a cart and she fell on the floor and she was carrying coffee grinds and they like fell into her ear and she didn't have any, any way to contact us or anything or to get up. Um, so she slid herself over to dad's chair, which I've been trying to get her to get rid of and move on for a while now. But anyway, she pulled herself up off that and onto her couch that you see in the movie and dials me to say, I'm not coming over to get that stuff. Um, I fell, but I'm fine. Um, and I said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll have my assistant bring it to you. So she expected, you know, this woman's voice as the gate, she hears the gate open, uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes later. And um, instead it's this booming male voice. And she's like, oh no, what, who is this? Um, and it was Cooper, dad's caregiver that you see in the film. She, she hasn't right. seen him over a year, well over a year. And uh, he said, he had a bag of pastries in his hand. And he said, I was leaving the bakery um, and and Eli's voice came into my head and he said, uh, go to Lisa. Mm. And I thought, well, that's weird. I got in my car and I was driving home and I was, you know, on a, at a stop sign and he said, go to Lisa. I kept driving home and then uh, I was, you know, going to turn right. And he said, go to Lisa for the third time. And mm. I, I turned left and I, I had to come over here and see if you were okay. And it was just like, that's so wild a story in my view i have other great stories but to me that's the one that's like how is that possible you know and 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 that's exactly who he would call because he was trying to convince me to keep cooper on to take care of mom after he died right that she needs help and to please keep cooper and and and, you know mom wasn't mom mom likes cooper but that wouldn't be having cooper would not be mom's choice i don't think so i was like well that's going to be up to mom dad so i hadn't kept cooper on because mom didn't really need that or want that so it was really interesting because that's exactly who he would have told so it makes me think he has eyes on his wife right now um yeah i also like you know there's that peacock at the end of the movie right on the day eyes that i see that peacock showed up every every day of shiva when mom would pull up in her car to to come and remember dad he that same peacock would be outside her yeah. Uh, her car door and then he would sit in my in my window when i was editing which was really interesting because he'd never shown up till that day and you know dad's we talked about him being unflinching and really mm. um so that was i mean that's a beautiful thing as well and there's one more there's one more which okay. is right. less less should I, I don't know less empirical not that the other one is empirical but it's close um but this one is my mom's favorite story, which is that when I was locking the cut for Sundance, I was, I needed to like stop. Yeah. It was like, we had to go to the mix. And um, I had eight pages of notes, sat down. The Avid for some reason wasn't saving, but it Mm. wasn't quick. Right. So I went on for 18 hours straight. Morgan at some point went to bed. It's like one of the mornings like, bye, good night. Seven in the morning, she shows up again and she finds me on my knees. I had, been cutting and it crashed. And uh, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm praying. (laughs) I tried everything, everything um, to get it, all the tricks to get it to come back. And it was gone. And all of my, like everything I'd done for 18 hours, which was thousands of edits were gone. Um, 
And I was on my knees, like praying to dad. And I was like, dad, I know this might be beyond your technical capacity, uh, but if you, you said you were going to watch over us. And if you really are, I'm really, really tired and I have to turn this into Sundance. And I, you know, I, I, I've made a bunch of edits that I didn't know. And I, I, I don't want to forget them, but I, I will, I'll do everything again if you can't do this, but if you could just, if you are watching and able to help in any way, please, you know, please do. And uh, she said, okay, well hit the button, you know? So I restarted it and it literally like ground and word and swooshed and like made all mm. these crazy sounds. And then all of a sudden my sister giving that final sermon popped up on the screen and then all of a sudden everything else filled in and then there was nothing lost. Like it was like, usually when it, always when an avid crashes, there's a safe in the attic, but it's like five minutes earlier or so, or 10 right, minutes earlier. Right, you know? right. This was, everything was back. And it was like, I called my mom, I woke her up and I said, mom, wake up. Dad just like saved the movie and we have to go to his grave and thank him. So she's like, okay. So I picked her up and we went to dad, thanked him and then I went to bed. That's, that's amazing. I mean, there's so much we, I, I, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface on so many things. Um, and I think um, those, those are remarkable um, stories. And to even see, as you even document on camera, your, your father's own spiritual journey playing out. And now you're sharing with us some of yours. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I also recognize that we, I, we could talk with you for for hours, I think, and this is a very poignant for uh, film for me for for many reasons and very personal reasons. But uh, you've you've been talking about the reaction to this film, and I think it, you know I don't I do want to give you an opportunity to to talk a little bit more about what you you are your family's trying to do uh, when you go to uh, certainly when you go to Washington and and what you're what you are pr trying what you're doing now with the film basically. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, so as I mentioned, Rachel was not necessarily a fan of putting this film out. Um, she said it's private, it's sacred, it should remain private. Yeah. Also, Reform Judaism, you know, at which she's a, a Reform rabbi of the biggest Reform mm. Center in New York, um, says life is a blessing not to be taken. Um, at that point, you know, this is fall of twenty twenty one. And, um, and so I called mom, what do you do? You know? So I called mom, mom called Rachel, asked her to at least get other opinions. You know, she showed it to her clergy and they said, mm. you have to let this into the world. It's, it's healing power is too great. Mm. Um, so she took the plunge and allowed it to be shared. And even she asked, you know, could you maybe when I help you hold the cup, I feel like somebody's going to freeze frame that and use it to take down my rabbit. Can you at least like, maybe find an angle where my hand is not on the cup helping you help right. dad. Um, and uh, I looked four cameras, not a shot without her hand on the cup. So I said, Rachel, I don't want, and I'm sure dad would not want, you know, to, to hurt your career in any way. So let, I'll just cut all that. And she, right. you know, she came back to me and said, no, let it, let it fly. So we, you know, we're all nervous. We all congregated in Park City the night before the premiere, um, even though Sundance had been mm. canceled. Um, we right. came together with the family anyway because it was too nerve-wracking and we were too vulnerable to not be together. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done sharing my family like this? And the reaction was so unbelievable that we stayed up till four in the morning after the virtual screening with emails coming in from around the country, hundreds, hundreds of posts, emails. Mm. It was like, we, I would read one, then Rachel would read one, then I would read like, and we were just sitting there like, oh my God, like the gratitude that people had to finally have like some kind of roadmap, at least some ideas, a guide mm. way mm. of how to, how to let go of a loved one, how to send mm. off, a one, how to find closure yourself. You know, there were so many personal, you know, I've, I've had friends. I have a, one friend who called his father, saw, saw the movie at Sundance. Then we had a physical premiere at Telluride later that year. He went at Telluride. He's a, an executive in the film business. He called his father after crying in the movie and holding the hands of a stranger. They held the hands the whole movie. He walked out and he called his father. He hasn't talked to him in 10 years and reunited with his father. You know, I've had people reunite with their mothers. I've had, it's just been mm -hmm. unbelievable. People like 
totally changed their work-life balance because of the film, you know? Mm. People do vidouis. They did like like my friend Margaret right. Brown, the great filmmaker. She walked out of the screening and called her father, who's not even in his, on his deathbed, and was like, "Okay, we're going to do this confessional thing now. I want you to talk to me about what you're ashamed about. I want you to be open." You know, like it's right. just yeah, it's just been. I've certainly, as an artist, I've never made anything that even comes close to impacting people like this, and I, mm. I've never seen anything quite like it. I almost feel like. You know, my 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 mother said everything dies, doesn't it, Rachel? And she said, "Yeah, but it changes form. Look what Dad turned into." Um, and he, he, I think, the power uh, has become across to us as a family of what sharing our story has done for people. But there's one more step, you know. And and so we saw that Reform Judaism changed their opinion, um, specifically about medical aid and dying in Canada because. They have equal access to healthcare in Canada. So they have um, reversed their decision after millennia in a very detailed mm -hmm. opinion that Rachel quotes and says that they say a law without uh, tenderness is wickedness. And that when the rabbis wrote the law, the average time of suffering was maybe five days and now it's years. So that right. it's right. longer the case that life is a blessing at that point. It's, mm -hmm. it's much more uh, reasonable and fair and compassionate to allow a person who's terminally ill with less than six months to live, to take their right. lives if they want to. One third of people who have this right um, and take and get the medication who exercise their right to medical aid and dying um, actually don't use the medication. Just having mm. it gives them a sense of power over their own bodies that mm. they have ceased to have, right? Like, and I realized somewhere along the way here with people coming up and crying to me saying my mother died of liver cancer in Florida and I wish she had had this right, but thank you. Thank you so much for making this film. I know it's gonna change laws or thank you because it's helped me heal because oddly people see their own families up there as they get to know ours. I don't know if that was mm. the case, but it's a very interesting aspect of film film that I'd never experienced before where it's a, like almost like imagination therapy. Like they can transpose their families mm. and heal even if the, death wasn't mm. positive or they weren't able to have this right, you know, mm. or come together even as a family. Um, so anyway, enough of that had happened that when we were shortlisted for an Oscar and didn't make the nomination, apparently close, but um, fear of death is a strong thing to fight. Against. <laughs> right. A lot of people watch it, you know, and didn't like, Word of mouth was very strong. You should see this, even if you lost somebody, but people are like, no, I just lost somebody, you know? So right, uh, right. anyway, when that happened, you know, the distributor's like, it's on Paramount Plus, it's on Amazon, off we go. And we just felt as a family, like the work wasn't done. Um, there's something, there's an opportunity here. We had Compassion and Choices, which is the largest organization um, for end of life choices in America since its founding. Uh, one state has changed the law mm. and allowed people this human right in their state. So for 11 years, 11 states, or 10 years, 10 states, something like that. So it's just a really effective legal advocacy group. They've said it's the strongest tool ever, ever to argue for the right to die with dignity because um, my father is so, you know, lovable, but also so, so so clear in his choice and so unwavering in his choice and our family comes around him so it's just kind of like because sometimes the personal right can be the most political i didn't mm. intend it to be a political document but it can be used very effectively for that so we raised some money from a very generous foundation to um have a couple of months of doing an impact campaign and seeing where that leads to kind of get the film to all the organizations that need it. We've had calls from Wales, Scotland, London, you know, from organizations, death and dying organizations, uh, national organization, international organization of death doulas, from Cedar sinai Hospital, from Harvard Medical School. For, you know, like there are so many places that want to screen this film with us there. Um, and we are like, you know what? As a family, this was so transformative for dad. It gave him everything. It was such a gift. The only reason this film even is able to be a gift is because of the gift mm. of medicine and dying. So we need to go and make sure that other people have this right and that there's millions of terminally ill people in America and, you know, and around the world, 
multi-millions. And by the time you're terminally ill, you're fighting for your life or you're fighting to, you know, accept that you're dying and say goodbye to everybody. You can't become an activist, you know? So right. uh, I become an activist. I mean, I don't think I've ever really, I've watched my sister get arrested like eight times and I'm not planning to get arrested for this, but you know, um, I've seen her just be an activist all my life. And I've thought, well, I do it with my films, you know, the film, I support the film, I put it out there and I move on to the next film, right. whether it's opioid solutions or climate solutions or, you know, right. the impact's impact on our lives, whatever it is. I'm like, you know what? The film will do its work. But in this case, I feel like, we, we, we can help. So we partnered with Compassion and Choices and we're taking the film to Nevada where it's just about to turn to New York state, which is, it's been there in front of the state legislator for, for, for eight years. And my sister's going up to Albany on May 22nd to go and testify there. Um, and we're going to show it through the summer and fall to try to get the law to pass there. Um, you know, because if you, if you're in New York and you're dying, you can't drive over the bridge to New Jersey where they do have the right. You have to mm. be a resident of New Jersey. And I will right. note that Vermont just changed their their law. It's a huge, huge advancement for the cause. They just, they're allowing non-residents to come to Vermont now, which mm. changes the game for people in New York. But still, again, if you can't afford to go to Vermont and rent a place, you can't die. Uh, a date of your choosing and with your family around you. I mean, this allowed us to have our kids come home from college, you know, get this mm. indispensable wisdom from dad. Like there were so many aspects that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this right. So yeah, we're taking it to Washington as a family um, and we're going to try to, you know, make as much noise as we can uh, in partnership with Compassion and Choices and with allies we have in the government. Um, to really see if we can move the needle here and get it into the hands of all the people, of the great people in end-of-life care that need to see it. And, and hopefully will, it will impact doctors and lawmakers and, and, and help everybody understand the nuances of this and that it is a basic human right. Hmm. It's bodily autonomy, you know? Yeah. Why should well, the government between you and your body? doesn't make hmm. any sense. Hmm. And when you... Uh, when you cease uh, being a activist uh, in your newfound role, uh, what's I mean? Because I, I, we have we are coming to the end of our time, uh, unfortunately. But uh, um, what is next for you um, after this? Well, this is what I'm. I'm really focused on this, but I'm actually this project led to an incredible uh, discovery, thanks to my mom. Many of the greatest things have come from my mom and dad. Um, mom cut out an article in the LA Times about a hospice for the homeless, the only one in the country. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, and I thought, and it's called The In-Between, which I love, I-N-N. Made right. it feel really homey. You know, I went to visit. It's in Salt Lake City mm. on my way to Sundance, and I... I found it to be the happiest place on earth in many ways. Um, wow. uh, it's such a, it needs to exist in every major city. It should be in every country. Right. Um, they provide also recuperative care so that if you have an operation, you don't go back out to the street and get infected. Yeah. But they find something. I found extraordinary characters in there. If, if it was clinical or it felt like a hospital, I wasn't going to be interested in that. Right. But right. it really is like, there's like pets running around. Like it's amazing. So I'm making a film mm. called between that I'm shooting now. Um, and uh, I'm very excited about that project and I'm unveiling the first footage from it at a fundraiser benefit um, in mid-June. So I'm just finishing wow. some piece for that. And then also, you know, those pages on the bed were the script of this, of this film um, and right. the story. And, and what I mean by that is I didn't know I was making a documentary, but I had made a film about, I had written a film for eight years uh, about and since the beginning of my career had dreamt to tell dad's story of founding that airline and then right. the stroke and its impact on our family and i don't know if you know but air florida had a terrible crash in uh, washington, six before that stroke in washington yeah. into the potomac river and all of that and how that filtered through the minds of, of the children and how my dad as a leader handled that and so it's just a very dramatic unbelievable story and i was never going to make a doc because i didn't have any archival footage except right. for what you see in the in the in the documentaries like 15 20 minutes of stuff so yeah i was always going to make a scripted film so i was glad i was filming 
I was glad I was filming dad's deathbed because I was reading it to him every day to get his reaction. And I thought, well, good thing I have cameras on for this. Of course, yeah. I cut all that out of the documentary, but my dream yeah. is to make that is to make that film. And, you know, it's a long road always towards making a scripted film, but I've done them and right. I really hope to be able to make that film. I've now incorporated the journey our family uh, took in the, that you see in the documentary sort of in the, into the scripted film as sort of a framing around it. Right. So, right. Um, it's also called last flight home. So I hope, I really hope to make that as well. Well, I, I have a feeling you will, but, uh, and if in uh, certainly uh, keep you in my thoughts uh, and hopefully that that does, uh, uh, does happen. And I guess uh, be interesting who plays your dad, right? You get to, maybe you'll have a choice and uh, name, you know, figure out which actor gets to be your, and who gets to play you. And these things. Yeah, I, but... I have some. I have some ideas in mind. I don't know if I'll, I'll say them on this podcast, but I will. <laughs> I will tell you. For those of you who are know my work and loved, we live in public. Um, right. I am collaborating with a British production company on a a three part uh, sort of series that brings we live in public up to date. Um, wow. And, uh, okay. And I have a a new film out called The New Americans that just premiered itself by Southwest that I had committed to before dad died. Um, right. And so I, I ended up making that film, but it's about sort of, we live in public and the, you know, it was about the loss of privacy and intimacy in the age of the internet. And it predicts where we are now in many ways, yeah, behaviorally, yeah. but the, but it felt like it needed an update given the insurrection and GameStop and all right. of that. So it's about extremism right. and about how organized online as either a hive mind or a mob um, and it's had such an incredible reaction from the press as well. And so I'm excited for that to come out and for you guys to see the new Americans, which is literally the polar opposite of last night. It's literally the other side of my brain, I guess. Um, <laughs> and then I'll say, the, I was going to make a love story during the pandemic. So I started documenting how people handled isolation and love. And I ended up happening upon people falling in love with AI chatbots. Um, and, uh, and I've been developing that and shooting that for three years. Um, I ended up making the ultimate love story with last flight home, but I am actually now, especially given chat GBT and all of the, you know, AI mm. news, um, obviously it's time for me to release that film, which is called soulmate. So I'll be, um, finishing that as well, probably within the next year or two. So what do you do with all your copious amounts of free time? I mean, you. you <laughs> I have a garden. <laughs> I do my, my partner and I garden. <laughs> Take care of our dogs. Like my favorite things are like taking out the trash, washing, walking the dogs, <laughs> going to the garden, riding my bike. <laughs> well, and nothing to do with screens. Nothing to do with screens. <laughs> I think that's a good uh, another great lesson you've uh, you can you can teach us and. Uh, uh, I just want to thank you again, um, and if we haven't scared you off, I'm, I hope you have you on again with with one with one of these other projects, uh, doc projects when they on. release. Yeah, and and uh, well, no, thank no, thank you. You're you're a, a wonderful guest, and I just want to thank you again for uh, coming on to the to the podcast. It's been very much very much appreciated. You sharing this and your your this very opening you know to you and your family because you all opened yourselves up to to us and it's a, a very poignant film and uh just to remind our listeners and viewers have been talking with award-winning filmmaker Ondi Timoner director you also have a writer producer I think you've got many credits on this one but uh of of and Last Flight it. Home yeah and you <laughs> edited that's right wasn't your brother so uh you know, it's a uh, no, Matt, I just I don't want to let this end without saying that my sister, in case she watches this, she has come so far behind this film. Um, she's so happy it exists in the world. She really is. It's it's been one of the greatest healing, uh, you know, that's her life is is healing and helping mm -hmm. people. She showed it at her temple for 550 people and wow. um crossed the country showing it. So um I just wanted to make sure to say that. That that was a big. That's an arc in and of itself. Is Rachel's yes. journey with this a, a big shout out to Rachel because I yeah. think because what would this film have been without her, right? You know, I I mean, I don't think I don't. Yeah, I don't know that it, there would have been exactly, exactly. There would have right. been yeah a lot a lot of. I thank God we had a rabbi in the family. I highly recommend <laughs> convincing your siblings to become rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to have a hard time of doing that in mind, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> well, Andy, thank you so much. It was great to have you, you on and best of luck with everything. And I look forward it. to the next uh, conversation. Good luck to you. Thanks. Thank Matt. you. Thank you. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. Big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.